Good morning, listeners. Today, our topic is democracy. How did we get it? What are we doing with it? And what should we do to it to make it better? I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to see, and you've got your pink coffee, which is always a good sign. So. I've got my pink coffee, and listeners, Tim now has a shaved head. <laughs> yeah, no pink hair to go with the pink coffee, and I've realised I can no longer make uh, offensive kind of World War Two jokes because it will fulfil a stereotype I don't want to be associated with. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> As if you were into offensive World War Two jokes. <laughs> well, I made one the other day, and I just didn't. I didn't. I well, you made a very strange comment at yeah. the Oxford <laughs> yeah. that was more like what? <laughs> it wasn't really funny. It was just so non sequitur. I think you managed to just stop all of us, which was quite an achievement, really. Ah, well, okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, goofed the goofers. Yeah, it was sort of non sequitur to you know non sequitur extraordinaire. Mm, true. True. <laughs> right. Well, David, speaking of World War II, perhaps, I think there are some things going wrong with democracy, but I think maybe we should start with an abridged version of uh, how we got here, because I think you know some of our listeners might be a little bit disenfranchised, disheartened, uh, disillusioned, sorry, yeah. with uh, how much they can affect what goes on in the world. And I think this is something that, you know, we've talked about it before, what potentially could be done to make democracy work better because it seems lots of people are frustrated, lots of very weird people are getting into positions of power, lots of people are feeling disenfranchised. But in a sense, going to the Sustainable Prosperity Conference, there were an awful lot of people there who recognised the system didn't or doesn't work and were open to the system being altered. Mm. Not just getting better outcomes, but getting a better overall system. Mm. And I think the fact that, you know, we had people at the conference talking about sortition, you know, which I'm just going to say citizens' assemblies because I think sortition's an ugly word. <laughs> I don't know who came up with it, but really? Couldn't they come up with a nicer word? <laughs> like I much prefer supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, even though the sound of it is really quite atrocious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've already got a weird rhyme in, doing well. So, yeah, let's jump back. Okay, democracy, how did we get here? Mm. Okay, we've got to jump back to Athens where only male citizens had any rights. And landowners too, right? Yeah. It was, again, a very limited proportion of male citizens. Mm. So there are some estimates that if you count women, children, no rights, slaves, no rights, foreigners, no rights, non-property-owning men, no rights, that maybe Athenian democracy at its peak... 15% of the population of Athens had the franchise. Mm. So even our starting point that we get all excited about is not actually that thrilling. It was better than what came before it, but it's not an end point. Mm. And two things about it are telling. One, it didn't last, which means once you get to democracy, it's not like suddenly somehow the world's been transformed in a way and it then can't go backwards. And secondly, Athens tells us something else too, that with your citizens' rights also came the obligation to be part of the militias that would defend the city any time it was in danger. Mm. So you got rights, but you also had to line up on the walls with your pike, Mm. in the same way that the stories tell us Socrates had to. 
So if we look at early democracy, not many people had the franchise, it didn't last, and part of having your rights was basing on an obligation. Mm. So that's, that's not very warm and fuzzy, but it's perhaps very instructive mm. that if you don't keep working on it, it will die, and that if it is not based in some sort of reciprocity between rights and obligations, people won't value their rights enough. Mm. And then we have a very, very big bit of, I don't know, authoritarianism, autocracy, dictatorships, oligarchies, feudalisms. Okay, the Romans had a republic that you know, played around with democracy. <laughs> yeah. But in the main, it headed towards an elite class dominating quite quickly, really. Mm. For how long the Roman Empire lasted, democracy within it didn't last very long. Mm. So once again, it shows there is nothing natural about democracy in big political and economic systems. Because, and it seems to me, that the system becomes too big that you can't possibly care about every single person in the system. The people that we put in charge are... Divorced from us and we're divorced from them. Exactly. So that wonderful number of 150 people is about the right size for a community. There you go. And Tyson Young Caporter said, whoever it was that came up with that number, I can't remember something like the Barton number, I never remember yeah, the I think dude's that's right. name. Again, you can always slot in a little thing and confirm. Absolutely. You know, operating around groups of about 150 people, that's the Dunbar number, mm. you know, and the Dunbar number is, you know, that, that fellow Dunbar, I do all that research, and it's um, in evolutionary terms, it's it's the number of people that we've evolved to um, you know, be the ideal community. So all of our systems within us, all the blueprints for how to be, how to live, uh, how to govern, um, trade, everything else, you know, these are biological as much as anything else now, but we've evolved to be able to do that with about 150 people really effectively. You know, but the magic number for communities is about 150. It's the reason why you know, a company in the army is still around that number because it's as many people as you can recognise and roughly know and roughly care about and who can you know, be the same about you. So mm-hmm. it guarantees uh, a commitment to the group, mutual responsibility, mutual obligation. And to say that you know, tribal groups, ancient groups were democratic, no, they were egalitarian. Mm. And they had rules-based systems with a balance of rights and obligations. It wasn't democratic. There wasn't a vote on things. Someone with authority would speak and people would either agree or if they wanted to do something different, they might go do it, thus putting the future of the group at risk. Mm. Yeah, You had the freedom in a world with less people and more resources to go bugger it and walk over the hill. That's not democracy. That's that if you don't like how the groups run, you can wander off. Mm. So that's part of the thing, you know, when we get to, okay, we'll take a, a big leap. There's no real logic in me unpacking it this way. So we'll just do things that pop in my head. So if we jump to the enlightenment, you know, the idea of democracy comes back. Mm-hmm. More and more people are convinced they want it. Mm-hmm. But then we get people writing about the social contract. So we get Hobbes writing Leviathan, you know, that we will all surrender a heap of our rights for safety. That's Kant as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Mm. So yeah, Rousseau famously writes a book called The Social Contract okay. where he makes it bloody obvious. For safety and certainty, I will surrender a heap of freedom for a combination of obligations and rights. Mm. 
that in balance will make a commonwealth in which we're all better off in the security the commonwealth can provide than we are in a nasty, dangerous world. Mm. But again, see, this is the funny thing. Rousseau, first book, uh, The Origins of Inequality. Well, it may not be his first book, but it comes before the social contract. In The Origins of Inequality, he imagines humans emerging in the sort of primordial forest. And it's the opposite of Hobbes's big, nasty, awful forest where everyone's at war with everyone and everyone's at you know, war with every scary creature with claws and big teeth. Mm. In Rousseau's forest, you go, hey, it's a nice day, I'll just lay on the grass. Oh, look, that tree's got nuts. I'll get some nuts. Hey, there's a fish in that stream. I'll go get a fish. Hey, there's an attractive human over there. <laughs> Maybe they want to have sex with me. Mm. Awesome. In Rousseau's world and the origins of inequality, the state of nature is this very nice place where people come together because they like each other's company. They create family because it's nice to stick around and be with people. And for him, the point where this all goes wrong is when the first person sets some posts in the ground and says, inside these posts is mine. Mm. So for him, property is the point where nature being a nice place gets undone. And he doesn't mean it sort of in a Marxist sense. You know, it, it's not. Well, I suppose Marxists would say it's in a Marxist sense. I don't think he was preempting Marxism. He was just realizing that once there's property, you get guaranteed inequality because people who are born with more property can exercise power over people with no property. And yet, people with property get to shape the political system and the legal system. So, for him, the social contract and the Commonwealth it could create was a way to temper those with a lot of property protect those with no property and come up with a society in which excesses at both ends were curbed. Excess power and violence was curbed and excess poverty was curbed. Mm. And yeah, this is not the warm, fuzzy, modern sort of welfare state that you know, hands out money willy-nilly. This is, you can still be very poor and quite hungry. Just the society will not ideally let you go under completely. And it will probably stop the very power from killing you in the street. You know, so again, an improvement over a Hobbesian type world, but nowhere as nice as Rousseau's early world. So what we kind of have going into modern Western democracies is utopian views of nature, dystopian views of nature, not much honesty about how and I'm not gonna say primitive societies because there's nothing primitive about them, but how, say, pre-industrial societies use a form of egalitarianism and a balance of rights and obligations that let people know their place, have freedom, fit in a group, feel safe, but they always know, because there's more space than there is people, there's more resources than there is people, that if you really don't like it, you can opt out. Mm. So the most powerful thing about a system is if you come up with a stupid one, everyone will just wander off. Mm. Whereas by the time we get to the construction of modern democracy, by the time we get to say, you know, the United States when we have the founding fathers starting to write the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, we've got a bunch of people living in a world who they can only imagine an orderly world where you turn it into farms. They're already starting to imagine building factories. Their idea is 
you tame and shape nature to suit you and you build a society in which you know people live outside of nature in this modern confection that's a good word <laughs> i like this idea so we're going to call modern mm. society a confection there's mm. nothing natural about it it's a confection that we've become normalized to so a democracy as it sort of evolved in the 1770s and how the french started to imagine it and the british started to imagine it was a democracy in which we're going to leave you with a fair amount of rights, but we're also going to make a bigger body that guarantees enough rule of law that tomorrow is likely to be like today and there will be a reasonable sense of you can get justice and your property is safe. Mm. So once again, it comes down to property and most justice is related to you know, to property. Mm-hmm. So out of that, then we get the interesting question of revolution or evolution. <laughs> so the French had their bloody revolution. Yep. And the Russians and yep. the Chileans, right? Yeah, well... No? Like, well, there's all sorts of okay. South American revolutions to get rid of the Spanish. Right. You know, we've got to remember that the Haitians threw out a Napoleonic army and created a black democracy, a slave democracy, mm-hmm. in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And the French and Americans punished them for a century. Mm-hmm. Well, really still are. They broke the place to such an extent it's never got off its knees again. No, that's right. And no, that's not very polite company conversation, but it's also true. If you look at US and French behaviour you know, towards uh, Haiti right through to Woodrow Wilson's invasion, I think just before or during World War I, mm-hmm. it's still just you know, brutal, obnoxious. You, know, you are going to be less than us and there is no other choice mm-hmm. so it's not like democracies let other people be democracies mm-hmm. in the american sense you're only allowed to be a democracy if you're going to be like the americans mm-hmm. and if you're going to be a good little ally or a minion you know right they've got a bit more sophisticated than that after world war Two, but they weren't very sophisticated until world war Two. <laughs> yeah so we have revolution more often than not leading to unstable democracies in the case of the french it probably cost them a century of mayhem in the yeah, case yeah. of the americans the fact that you know, their revolution was based on the idea of no taxation without representation, hey, that's a pretty sensible idea for a revolution. It's saying, we don't mind paying tax, but we're going to have a say in our own future. So that's interesting in the context of what we've just learned, let's say, at the conference. Mm. I mean, it makes sense, right? If you're, mm. I suppose if you're spending money into the economy, but then if you're taking it from people that you're not then representing. Mm. If you're taking money from me... Mm. What are you going to do for yeah, me? That, thing, that, that, that surpasses any kind of economic model. That mm. just is a basic rule. Yeah, because it's not about saying we are only going to spend the money we tax off of you back on you. Yeah. No, it's nothing to do with that. No, that's right. It's just if you're going to tax us, what are we getting? Yep. What kind of society are you giving us? What's the compromise? So what we see in the US is by having a really, I don't know, I don't know a better word than sensible reason for their revolution – they hold the gains. All right, they've still got slavery, they still treat women badly, but you know they, they establish and sustain a democracy that over time the franchise is extended. Mm-hmm. You know, the Civil War very nearly breaks the US, but doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a famous painting of Lincoln and his generals uh, in one of the, the sort of main room for the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon, sort of, you know, planning, and it's not clear where they're planning a final battle in the war, or for how to rebuild America. Mm. It's read as it's about how to rebuild. Yep. So, you know, the fact that Lincoln could imagine rebuilding the Union. You know, the Brits, we get William Godwin in 
the 18 teens, mm-hmm. coming up with the idea of evolutionary revolution, looking at France and going, don't start chopping heads off because the minute you unleash the genie of violence, it can't ever be put back in the bottle. Yeah, You've legitimised the use of violence to gain your utopia. Yeah. Which means anyone else can use violence to get their utopia. Mm-hmm. So his argument was, doesn't matter if it takes time in the UK for the middle class to just keep pushing for slightly more enfranchisement. Mm-hmm. A few more men to be able to vote, then more, then more. Eventually all men after World War One, and then all women. Mm-hmm. And we've got to remember here, people, you know, Switzerland only gave women the vote in the early 1970s. Mm-hmm. So it's not like all democracies got enlightened and got shit done quickly. No. We've got an economic powerhouse and a sophisticated cultural nation that didn't deem women to be worthy of the vote until the 1970s. Yeah. It's quick in terms of human history. In terms of human history, but relative to... to lifetimes. Lifetimes, mm. yeah. You know, there's still people alive and voting in Switzerland who were excited that they might have been the first woman in their family to ever vote in Switzerland. Yeah, true. So what we see is that the history of democracy is pretty freaking patchy. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, and all over the place. Into like, I literally like yeah. <laughs> has lots of different locations where things changed. Yeah, and you know, I'm only going to use Western examples because they're the ones I know. And if I'm neglecting good other examples, fine. So there's an American anthropologist who's written a lot of interesting stuff about the Mongol Empire, but has also written that American democracy is essentially uh, a gift from Native Americans. Mm. that all the core concepts were there in Native American culture. Now, my guess is if you combine that with the fact that the elite of the United States were reading so much ancient Greek and Roman thought, you put the two together, it probably consolidated very well. And yet they didn't learn the lesson and they still excluded indigenous people, slaves and women. So it's sophisticated, but they were still assholes, just in a different way. (laughs) True. And plenty of indication that enough of the founding fathers had children by their slaves. So, once again, oh, I mean, so hypocrisy it, wins the day. So, does that mean that technically speaking, w- were they then involved in the elite, or were they still left out because they were mixed blood? Oh, they left out absolutely. Okay, I was just wondering. No, 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 no equivalent of Eurasian elite like you get in India, yeah, or you know, in parts of Asia. Mm. So, patchy start on democracy. If we look, say, let, let's jump to World War Two now. Churchill makes the point that democracy is the least worst system we've invented. Mm-hmm. which I think is a pretty good statement because we really haven't perfected democracy. No. But Churchill you know, hints at something really, really important. Democracy is great because you can put good people in the right place. Well, you can put talented people in the right place to get good outcomes. And everyone feels included and everyone can be heard in some way, shape or form. True. All very positive. But it doesn't mean it's perfect. You know, Before World War II, there are not many democracies in the world. Mm. After World War II, we suddenly have a flood of democracies as we get the wave of decolonisation. Mm. Now, if we had someone from the UN in the room, they're going to start seeing Kumbaya and tell me how astounding the creation of this many democracies has been. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to take someone like Sean McFate's argument, who as a white hat mercenary has worked in more shithole democracies in Africa <laughs> than any mercenary should probably have to work in, mm-hmm. for generally the right reasons of trying to make a better world for people. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the democracies created since World War Two are still run by oligarchical elites mm. that use and abuse resources and don't 
really, it seems, believe in democracy. They nominally let people feel like they've got a say so they don't have to put down the next revolution. Mm. You know, the, the, a wonderful example, the current president of Sierra Leone was in his first coup as a young army officer, I think at about 23, was in his second coup at about 26, was president at 27, and he was only president for a few months having you know, orchestrated another coup to make it happen. And what he did was set the country up for a proper democratic election, exited and went and got an education in the US, mm. came back decades later and got elected in the democratic system he created to be a proper democratically elected president mm. because he was one of these incredibly enlightened guys that said as long as people just keep taking power, that will be our norm. Mm. Yes, if you look at places like Uganda, independence, amazing constitution, great foundations of democracy, first dictator, second dictator, return to first dictator, then President Museveni imposes one-party rule when he comes out of the bush. You've now got an, an opposition, but you've still not really got entirely functioning democracy because mm. he still doesn't trust his own people to be able to balance a change of government. Now, it's infinitely better than Uganda's been for a bloody long time, but if you don't trust your people. So we have places like Rwanda where you know there's all sorts of dumb books written by bleeding-heart, politically correct academics saying Rwanda is astounding, look at where it's come from the genocide. Well, essentially, it's an authoritarian state with the window dressing of a democracy to make it acceptable to pour Western money into. Now, is it better than it was? Absolutely. Is it good? No. So, you know, if we take the Sean McFate argument, most of the democracies created since World War II are unstable, don't really, their elites don't really even believe in democracy, and their population vote hoping things might get marginally better, but also going, well, we do get some say, mm. it's hardly worth a revolution. Mm. And yet if we look, say, at the end of the Cold War, when the world is flooded by ultra-cheap Soviet Union weapons. You know, look at all the civil wars that burst when suddenly people who wanted to have a revolution could get weapons. Could afford to, yeah. So what it means is in the very young democracies, most haven't stuck well. In the older democracies... Well, they're, they're, cor- they're corrupting a little bit. They're, they're a little bit... They're, they've changed. They've, they've evolved in ways maybe people don't want or or aren't happy with and maybe that's taking example from some of the kind of um democracies that they feign in the in the in the kind of less well-off countries well i i will i think make the argument that the consistent thread for making sense of the failure of young democracies mm-hmm. and the decline of old democracies is to look at the people who want to be the leaders mm-hmm. if we look at say the u.s Britain, uh, Australia, New Zealand. We have multiple generations of people getting involved in the union movement or the increased franchise movement or the get the franchise for women movement Mm. and then getting the vote and then becoming a generation later, their children or maybe them in their older age, becoming members of parliaments, Mm. knowing what it cost to get there Mm. and knowing that this was a precious thing that had taken a lifetime's work. 
and there's a power in that. Yes, in a sense, if we look after World War II in the old democracies, you get a generation who have gone through either World War I, are still in power, then you get their children, their sons initially and eventually their daughters, who've been through the Depression and World War II. You get people who know how important peace is. You get people who understand how important social cohesion is. You get people who understand how important justice is. You get people who understand how important safety is. Right, and, and those things create disproportionate fear? or Well, those things create a genuine understanding of how bad it can be if you don't do good. Mm-hmm. So if you know how bad it can be, you know what it's like to be hungry, you know what it's like to go to war, you know what it's like to have to work in a munitions factory mm-hmm. and make munitions to send away that your brother, your, you know, your future husband... Mm-hmm. are going to try and use to kill other people. Mm-hmm. When you become a politician, it's not about you. It's about society more broadly in the world you know, at a bigger scale. Sure. You know, the focus moves from me to we. Absolutely. And now, listeners, you're probably going to this point, well, hang on, didn't countries after decolonization have the same thing? I'm there. Partially, but no. What most countries had after decolonisation was a combination of two major forces as they were democratising in the 50s or 60s. And that is one group who desperately wanted the colonial power out mm-hmm. and wanted to build a better, more modern society who had been persecuted for an extended period of time. But there was normally a second group the local group that the colonial power had used to run and dominate the rest of the population. So I think France, Fanon, called them the comprador class. Interesting. So it's the indigenous population who've been conditioned, normalised, to brutalise their own people to have a better standard of living and access to the resources. Mm-hmm. And what you see across so much of the developing world africa is the starkest examples because it lines up with the flood of weapons Mm -hmm. is those two groups in civil wars within years of most of these countries coming into being after world war ii Mm. that you get the revolutionaries who want to make a better world versus the comprador class that just want to swap the colonial masters for them Now, of course, there are examples. Tanzania finds its way to relative stability. Senegal finds its way to relative stability. Uh, Uganda gets there by the mid-80s. Now, there are other good examples, but they're the ones I know reasonably well. So, once again, democracy, immaterial of what constitution you end up with. And for people out there with law degrees here in Australia, jump into the legal history of Australia helping to write brand new constitutions after World War II for an awful lot of the developing world. Because we weren't an imperial power and yet we were a well-educated population and got heavily involved in the UN, the number of Australian lawyers who helped write constitutions is huge. And most countries at the time of independence got beautiful constitutions. If you want to go constitution reading audience, go read the Iranian constitution that came in after the revolution in 1979. Now, that they wrote for themselves. It's the most awesome document until you get to the paragraph about you know 
anything in this document is superseded by the fact that the Ayatollahs dominate everything. So it's great right up to the fact that there's no democracy. Yeah, right. <laughs> so my argument being here, and I've gone, like everything I normally do, it's in a very roundabout path. Oh, I, I think it, what it's shown is, well, I'm, I'm going to butt in here just right when you're about to make your... Feel free because it might add value. ...penultimate point was that <laughs> it seems like a, a big pattern here is feigning, feigning representation, feigning democracy in favour of whatever system preceded it or whatever it is that the leaders want or yeah it's it seems like democracy is is a is a badge i think to some people where it should be a way to be yeah yeah you've yeah you've the excellent thing is you've got to the essence of what i wanted to say and that Mm. is democracies are only ever as good as the people who end up leading them Mm -hmm. and the people who lead them are determined by the people who vote for them so what we see so much is that as long as an elite gives people just enough that it's not worth having a revolution, democracy is rarely for anything more than a minimal benefit for the majority of its population in most places on planet Earth. Now, we live in one of the best examples where our democracy has had the benefits of a land with tons of resources. We haven't had cataclysmic war on our soil we had multiple generations who through the experience of war and depression and gaining rights through things like the union movement then you know the female franchise movement have said no all this work is not to be greedy all this work is to not dominate and just give the rest of the population enough to shut up it's actually to build something that is a greater thing for all of us and that's what Democracy can be, but it's nothing to do with whether you are or aren't a particular kind of democracy. It's everything to do with who ends up leading and how their population feel about them and what the population will do about them. Ultimately, it comes back to that point of representation, though, right? Like, people have to be able to... Like, a donkey vote is a good example, right? I'm Mm. not sure what our percentage of donkey votes are, but... Uh, it, it's it's not insignificant. You know, th- these are people who either feel they aren't being represented or mm, let me be cynical, cynical for a second, don't understand necessarily their role. Um, or a jack of all of it. Yeah. Now, some countries have instituted an extra box on voting forms, which essentially is the none of the above box. Here in Australia, we pretend people didn't know what they were doing rather than acknowledge that people might be protesting. Yeah. I want and none of the above box. I want to know how many people go, we're a democracy in which I'm convinced by neither group of people who have decided at 20 they want to be powerful. And I reckon there should be, even could be like a progressive thing written into the constitution where you would say, let's say even if 20%, that might even be too high, who knows how progressive you want to be with this, but 20% of the population pick the none of the above box, that the whole thing gets scrapped and you have to have new... You've got to come up, up to with a, a whole, you know, an entirely better system. Well, not necessarily a better system. Um, well, get rid of the people get at a minimum. Of the people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, certainly limiting terms in Parliament. But again, this is where the critical thing is. It comes down to people. If people decide at 20, and I don't care on what side of politics they're on, that they want to get into politics, from watching students for nearly two decades, what I've seen is when they decide that, it's normally because they want to make a better world. 
but by the time they get there, they've been so shaped by a party and vetted by a party and they've put at least two decades of their life into getting there. And then it's, I've got here, now how do I stay here? Yeah. I don't want you to want to stay there. I want you to want to do something while you're there. Yeah. Well, everyone wants that. Yeah. Well, do they? Everyone that... Everyone's voting probably does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how many people have spent 20 years trying to get there? Is it still about what they can achieve? Because they've been part of the party machine that's lost three elections in a row and they finally won one. So what's the principal mission once they win an election, having been out of government for three terms? So here's an interesting counterexample, maybe. I might be looking at this too superficially. Say someone like Donald Trump, right? Say someone that's had a career as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, as someone in a private sector had aspirations while they were young to do something that wasn't politics but then move into it later on and have the, let's say, political capital or just even the quite literal financial capital to move into that hard and fast, do they have then the ability to change the world for the better or has their previous career corrupted their interests so much that they can't do okay. anything? You're onto something really interesting, but let's go beyond Trump because okay. he's a terrible example of a good, you know, good idea. Yeah. In the majority of the world until the 1970s, you didn't have career politicians. Mm. You got politicians who it was their second career. Yeah. They did something for 20 years first. They didn't work as a party hack. They didn't then become an advisor. They didn't then move up the machine and become a creature of the machine. Mm-hmm. And I'm not having a go at any particular party machine. They're all the same. They all make your loyalty to the party and the future of the party. Because if the party's not in power, why have you put all the work in? Mm. Again, humans are shaped by experience. And if the experience is the machine, the machine shapes the human. So it's really, in Australia as an example, people, you know, again, we use some obvious public figures. John Howard is basically the beginning of the I want to be a politician from a young age and my career is only just long enough to prepare me for politics. Mm. Paul Keating is the Labor equivalent. Mm-hmm. He swaps into Parliament as fast as possible. And from, you know reading some interesting memoirs from people on the left and right who you know had been through World War II and then were politicians after having a career as a doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever they did. They looked at these young careerist politicians with incredible distaste. Mm. Okay, what do you know about life? What do you know about society? What do you know other than being committed to wanting power? Mm. And that's not to say that John Howard didn't want to build his version of Australia. It's not to say Paul Keating didn't want to try and build his version of Australia. And that depending on which side you're in, you'll see merits in both of them to a degree. But when the principal period of your adult life has been about getting the power or then maintaining the power, how corrupting is that? And my argument's going to be is it is more corrupting than we should tolerate. Yeah, right. It's an old adage. I'm not sure what the original version of it is, but I swear it is some kind of saying. The people who want to be in power are exactly the people that you don't, don't want, want to be power. in power. Yeah. yeah, which is a crazy place to get to. So, listeners, we're used to the idea of voting for people 
and we we sort of argue that voting is democracy because it's what we know. Mm. And what I want to propose is we should be able to get good people who've had a career first in politics. Mm. Trump shouldn't be the example we use of what happens mm. because the career politicians are failing this, which is why the Americans gave Trump a go. Yeah. You know, they're underperforming at such a profound level that you go, well, he, surely he's competent. Well, what he did was sit in front of a camera at a big desk in a sharp suit for multiple seasons doing The Apprentice, which conditioned a whole country to believe this guy's competent. Yeah, so, when, when realistically, well, I, you know, it's it's really difficult to know sometimes, I think, whether he's successful or not, whether he's an idiot or not. Because well, he was a billion dollars in debt and it appears the banks decided that if we let him go down, we lose everything. Yeah. If we use him as a figure, we get all our money back. Yeah, true. So whether there's any confidence or not, he certainly knows how to do uh, Cameron Murray's version of yeah. Game of Mates in the American sense. Yes. Um, yeah, he, he knows how to make Game friendships that benefit. Well, yeah, and be willing to bet. You could act your way through that. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So, listeners, what I want to propose today is our democ- well, my final point about where democracy is at is it's at a point where even if people start with the right motivations, I do not by- believe that by the time they're in a position of power that those motivations are still mm. dominant. Mm-hmm. At an absolute minimum, it's 50% improve the world, 50% how do we stay in power, mm-hmm. and that to me is an unacceptable equation. Mm-hmm. I want democracy, which really simply means you know, by the people, for the people. How the mechanism works is up to us. By the people, for the people does not mean we have to vote for someone who spent 20 years trying to get into parliament. Mm-hmm. And what you know, multiple people were talking about at the conference and Tim and I have been talking about it for ages and I haven't wanted to write about because I don't feel like coming up with a whole theory to create a political system. It's boring. No, <laughs> it's really important and I just, I don't know enough to do it properly. Well, it's it's one of those things that you could come up with the core idea, but then yeah, I need someone be, else, a legal person, to help get me. so entangled in all the minutia of yep. flow-on effects that it would be difficult. Yeah. So, you know, lots of people at the conference were talking about sortition, which is citizens' assemblies, the idea that you randomly select people from a larger group of people. So, my argument for Australia would be: get rid of the states, bye bye. Get rid of voting for federal seats, bye bye, mm. because. We're getting careerists who are contaminated by the experience of being in parties. Yep. I want a random selection of 500 Australians every five years get a letter in the mail Yeah. saying, would you like to be a member of parliament for the next five years? Mm-hmm. Your pay will be significant to make sure it doesn't upset your life and that 100 of you of your 500 mm. can be picked by the other 400 to Mm. go on and get an extra five-year term if you are particularly competent or you're particularly motivated to be there, Mm. but no one can do more than 10 years. And you can say no, and then the random system just picks another person. I'd probably have some exclusions, like I'd say, while you're a member of the Defence Force or a police officer or, say, a judge, you're doing something so important and so specific that probably not while you're doing that can you get the ladder. You know, before or after, yes, I'm not sure whether during, because you've got a lot of inside knowledge about very specialist stuff which might 
work well or might not, again, want the advice of people with more knowledge than they yeah. And what the, even those specific systems we've talked about before, even let's say policing, even defence, even legal systems yeah. could be have some sort for form of sortition process where you have to be invited to enter that career as opposed to entering of your own volition. Well, that could all be considered at so many places it might be a better system. Yeah. But what this means at a practical level is people would genuinely be representing us who are us. Mm-hmm. And we can all complain about someone we don't know. <laughs> But what if we know our decisions is going to affect everyone we chat to every day that we care about? Totally. Well, that, that, that's ultimately that's how representation should feel. Precisely. That you care because it's about your family, your friends. Yes. But with a random selection of 500 people, mm. they randomly care about a lot of people who normally wouldn't feel that someone cares about them. Yes. In the political yes. sense. Yes, very true. So, of course, my fear with this is that the critical role ends up being public service the people who advise so my argument there is that while you are a public servant probably at the federal level you can't take your parliamentary spot mm-hmm. and then go back to the public service that you know you could take your parliamentary spot but then you would have to go to the private sector there'd have to be something to make sure you don't go between advising and then being and then back to advising that's yep. how you start building an elite yep um i also think that if parliamentarians you know, the majority of them are only going to do five years. A very competent minority are going to do ten. Um, I probably want a world where no one's public service career is more than 15. Yeah. Or, or 20 at the most. Yeah. Uh, I want a world where every expert in a field that could be useful to parliament is listed on a body where any parliamentarian who wants to know about something knows they could go, Hang on, that person's an expert in that. They're on my list. That's it. I can ring them yep. and they'll get paid for a day to explain it to me. Yeah. Or I can bring them to Canberra with the budget available to us in Parliament and have them explain to the group of people who I've found I like to talk things through with. Yeah. So it's not a political party, it's just a group of people who find together they make better sense of stuff. And then your phone would be buzzing all day. Yeah, but the point is <laughs> I'd get paid to go do it. Oh, definitely. But it would all be on the public record. Yeah. That I'd been asked to do this. Yeah. I'd been paid this much. It had not come out of yeah, it had come out of federal funding mm. and it was all transparent. Mm-hmm. And you know, you would need some sort of anti corruption body of just people with the, the highest level of integrity, a commitment to the well being of society to oversight all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, if a really, really big decision needs to be made and this parliament go this big decision needs to be made. Some kinds of decision should not be able to be made by the current parliament. They should decide that what will happen is another 500 people will be selected, come to Canberra, spend two months, yeah. work on that issue, make a decision with no vested interest. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying the system would be easy, but I'm sick of us not making democracy something worth having. Our current system isn't even particularly easy, really. No. But, you know, the moment we've got a system we bitch about, yeah. <laughs> when we are living some of the nicest lives, if not the nicest lives in human history, well, that makes we're us, bitching. That, yeah, see, but that makes us complacent, you know. I think that there's and that's why to me it's so important to bring back random selection where you have to make decisions because you care about people. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and the other side of this to me is the other side is you have to reinstitute civics at every level of education. Mm-hmm. There was debate, I think in the early 2000s here in Australia, that we should have a Bill of Rights. And Malcolm Fraser, the former Liberal Prime Minister, who by the time he died had renounced his membership of the Liberal Party. Said you also have a Bill of Responsibilities. Yeah, Bill of Obligations. Bill of Obligations. Yeah. I think different people in different times have said responsibilities or obligations. I'm not sure whether Malcolm Fraser said one or the other. I think it was obligations. Yeah, I think that, that rings a bell. But to me, if you potentially have the rights of a citizen, you should also know clearly what your obligations are. Because how else are you meant to understand that your life is this good because as a whole we all sacrifice some freedom to make a better society mm. unless you learn your rights and your obligations simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And those obligations do not have to be particularly onerous. They just need to be clear. I want to come back to the revolution versus evolution thing. Mm. Your examples of evolution take a really long time. Yeah. And that but that's why they've made stable democracies. Yeah, well, so they've made democracies that got stable and then are disintegrating more slowly. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's are right. getting sick more slowly. Yeah, so as the quality of the people involved deteriorate. We can imagine if we look at was it etymology, mm. changing of words, mm. <laughs> revolution being just a shortening of rapid evolution. <laughs> mm. But it really came down to that thing of can you use. Violence to get utopia. Yeah. And that the minute you unleash that genie, guess what? Mm. Unless you are the current president of Sierra Leone who was involved in two revolutions and then said, if this keeps happening, my country's only going to get worse. Yeah. I'm going to organise an election that I'm not going to participate in and I'm stepping away. Yeah. That's the kind of human we want millions of. Yes. Not one. Well, let's put it in context of things that we might want to change, which is what started this conversation. Let's say that you know a bunch of our listeners really would like that you know the government gives lollipops to every household every week. That you know that kind of change takes is too hard to implement, so that they don't pursue it. Yeah, it's not necessarily that it's too hard to implement. It's just that it will take a really long time, even under this. Yeah. sortition uh, to change i think an, another way to explain that would be that let's say that we go to this sortition system that people will still have the, the first 500 people will almost operate almost exactly like the previous system because that's, yes, all, that they that's all they know and so eventually it's going to take what maybe 20 years four governments whatever it is for it to to change so well, to my mind we could start with some small examples yeah okay we could start with public universities, public hospitals. Right. You know, things that are big, complex systems, we're not being rude. I don't trust the people that want to manage them either. No. Because they've normally become careerist yep. about having power. Yeah. At some point they were very good at their job. But you know, the old adage that most people get one promotion plus their talent, sorry, I've seen too many examples of that in consultancy training people mm. to believe that most people are at the level they should be. The vast majority of people are one level too high yeah, right. and are actually on the verge of incompetence. Yep. And they are not themselves incompetent. They've just been promoted once too many and hit a place where maintaining it is too damn important to their status and their income stream and they hang on for grim death. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if we could practice this in institutions, you know, not being rude, but if you took the average university and just randomly selected a proportion of academics, professional staff and postgrads and said, for the next three years, you're the management committee. And even if you had a constant rotating system 
where every year there was a few of each of his groups. And you could serve for a maximum of five unless it was voted that you know, you're the next VC, then you get five more. So the yeah. only person who gets ten is the VC. But mm. they still don't get more than ten. Mm. Then they've got to go back and be an academic or a researcher. Yeah? I would love to see this tried in situations where through trying it in institutions, you could start getting a generation of people saying, guess what? As long as you've got good managers to advise on technical things, which all these institutions have, mm. your decision makers can be anyone who cares. Because the most critical thing is basic competence, and being in most institutions means you would have basic competence yep. and caring. Yep. And honestly, I can't see how we do a worse job than we currently are. <laughs> That's a good way to end. <laughs> Well, the terrible thing is about we are on paper doing a great job. Mm. But if we're doing such a great job, why do people not have anything good to say about politics or how universities and hospitals run? Mm. Again, going to my examples where I think we could start this. But, you know, the first university that had the guts to run this way, and in a sense, you know, Adelaide University used to have a university council where everyone on it was elected. Mm-hmm. So the university used to be run by a democracy. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how to run a business. But they knew how research and teaching worked. Yeah. Now they run a business, and I'm not sure they still understand how research and teaching work. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Most yeah. hospitals, you know, all the terrible stuff written about the brand new Royal Adelaide Hospital, about <laughs> the sheer dysfunctionality of the systems, how with so many committed people, with so much experience, can it run so bad? Other than we're not putting people with knowledge in positions where they can meaningfully affect change. That leaves me rather cynical, but I think a nice thing about having this discussion has been that it's probably changed my mind a little bit about the cynicism of an average voter. You know, I've I've always held that Winston Churchill, who we've mentioned earlier, uh, it, that quote, which was the best argument against democracy is a five minute conversation with the average voter. <laughs> um, and I've always held that view, which is rather cynical that people mm. have not don't have enough vision to vote on the, the things that kind of matter, let's say. And I that's why you need random selection. Sure. So that it's not just the vision of people parties pick. Yeah. Because all we're getting now is the vision of what parties pick for pre-selection. It is totally and utterly unrepresentative of our society as a whole. So you think, and, and I'm I'm interested, you think that that will then affect, uh, and I'm, I agree, th- once you change the leaders, the dialogue of the country changes and it almost immediately changes with the media and all those kinds of things because the only people that you have possibly to elect have changed the dialogue. Yes. Okay. Yeah. If you make it that you can't spend a career pretending to be a leader mm. to then not lead, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> then those kind of people, all right, we're always going to get some idiots through random selection. We're always going to get some power crazed people through random selection. Yeah. But the bulk of people aren't stupid. You couldn't function if you're stupid. Well, the thing is that I'm concerned about being a media student, let's say, is that the Rupert Murdochs of the world will just only highlight the Pauline Hansons of the 500 people that get selected. But isn't that a wonderful thing about being a parliament? Mm. You could decide you want the ABC and SBS to have enough funding to actually help with the civics of the rest of the population. Good point. So if you have a parliament who are not beholden for their career Mm. to people like Rupert, Yes. Can actually go, Rupert, shut the fuck up and we'll have our own media source. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It, it, every, almost everything that concerns the public should be in the public 
sector in 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 i and that's not that's too vague really to be meaningful but yeah. in in terms of media that kind of concerns our democracy that should be in the public yeah. sector our health that should like you know it, yeah. hospitals basically should be in the uh, as every study sector. on health says mm. it's cheaper to provide health to an entire population under a single system that is about quality of outcome yeah. rather than profit for shareholders yes like profit for shareholders health is one of the horrible delusional consequences of neoliberalism mm-hmm. and even if you're a neoliberal and you like most of neoliberalism if you like neoliberal health policy then you truly have drunk the Kool-Aid mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with the people, the suppliers. There's nothing wrong with the people that no. make the things no, for just, hospitals being just, in the private. In just private. do it yeah. for a fair profit, but not for a gratuitous profit. Mm. Everything that's important should move slowly, a.k.a. everything that's important should be public. Yep. Everything that feeds those systems can be fast enough to help our lives get better yep. can be private. Because, again, we outsource the contract. Yeah. Hey, three companies, we need a new widget. Yeah, all of you put in a pitch. That's it. That's where that's where capitalism is is at its best. Where it's at yeah. its worst is letting it run things that matter. Yes, because it's incompetent. Yeah, because <laughs> so all of a sudden things that matter become expensive. Yeah, yeah. And you know this is the thing here, like with random selection, and this is why I came up with a number of five hundred people. Okay, it seemed enough to genuinely done randomly mm. to be representative in a way that our parliament just isn't. Yeah, and you if you know that theoretically randomness could actually chuck, you know, 150 people with small children in Parliament, guess what? Parliament's going to end up with the best childcare in Australia, <laughs> which is mm. going to make it easier for the next bunch of politicians yeah. with little kids. Mm. And don't we want someone who cares about education because their five-year-old doesn't want to learn to read, helping to make decisions? Mm. Don't we want a Parliament where a teacher who's beginning to get to that exasperated point of going, this system is crap, might get to stand up and make an argument from personal experience. Mm. But way, democracy will be whatever we make of it. And at the moment, we're not making anything of it. We're just complaining about it. Mm. And we're complaining about it because the system just gives us enough to not want to burn the house down. Well, I'm sincerely hoping that someone writes a book about... I'll write the book with them. I just don't want to write the whole bloody <laughs> thing on my own. Well, no, I mean, not even this topic. I just mean how to ask for this. I want I want someone to write the book that can tell Western civilians how to ask for the change. Um, you know, everyone means well, but meaning well and having and being ineffective is meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> and we've got just way too much ineffectiveness, yeah. which is only beneficial to those who already have power. That's right. Uh, it, it just makes me sad, really. But <laughs> yeah, but it also, you know, more importantly, in the end, makes people mad. And the thing yes. is, we could start playing with institutions of transforming them yeah. to running them by random selection. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. And condition, well, it is conditioning. You normalize people to, there's multiple ways to be democratic. Yeah. There's multiple ways to be, you know, by the people for the people. Mm. So, so many things we could try this out on. Like. Mutuals, yeah, yeah, that's a really good place to start. Like we could try it with cooperative, yeah, you know, bodies, yeah. Yep. Now they're a big thing in America. You know, the country of you know rugged individualism mm. proportionally has more co-ops than any other country. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Well, uh, in that in that case, a call to action to all those people who uh, work for and <laughs> are involved in cooperatives and mutuals to uh, change your system, please. <laughs> yeah, give it a go, so we get data. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs>
<laughs> right. Well, thank you very much, David, for joining us. Um, it's been an informative episode. I'm I, I'm not feeling sad. I hope I I, I, I just some things make me sad, but yeah. I'm still feeling angry. So that's the, yeah, angry is better than sad. Help me help. We'll have to talk about how to direct that in in another episode. But yeah, we can do that. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, Tim, and thank you, listeners. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Listener.